Hey everybody, this is Jeremy from Reasonable Doubts. Next week we'll be posting our first regular format episode of the new year, but today I wanted to share with you a recording that was made last November. Now typically on the show, Luke, Dave, and I aim our skepticism towards claims that are religious in nature. But on the track I'm going to play for you now, we focus instead on some of the more common targets for skeptics. Alternative medicine, the paranormal, and other fringe claims. It was all for an event at Grand Valley State University called the Pseudoscience Fair. This was organized by the CFI on Campus group at GVSU, and the students there designed some really cool exhibits on homeopathy, UFOs, conspiracy theories, and a host of other modern delusions. Luke and I also spoke at the event, so what you'll hear first is Luke's presentation on the psychology behind belief in pseudoscience and other fringe claims, followed by my speech on how to distinguish between genuine science and pseudoscience. Then at the end, there's a brief panel discussion between myself, Luke Galen, and Dr. Paul Critelli, a psychiatrist, magician, and mentalist who currently lives in the West Michigan area. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with episode 60 of Reasonable Doubts. Is it on? Ooh, it is. Okay. Um, thank you for coming. Um, we're going to start with a presentation from Dr. Luke Galen about the psychology of pseudoscience. Yeah, so welcome to the pseudoscience fair. Um, everybody's had a chance to look at the various types of uh, specific examples of pseudoscience from the reptile people on my left to the Bigfoot people on the right and everything in between 2012 and uh, the uh, intelligent design, etc. So what, uh, what I'd like to address is the, of the various forms of pseudoscience, why is it that people find pseudoscience believable? And so since my area is in psychology, what I like to address is what, is it, what are the psychological factors that feed into why people believe in pseudoscience? Um, so uh, the commonalities between these things. Well, one of the things I want to talk about then is the, um, in, in general, is uh, cognitive biases that maybe, uh, that are maybe even wired into us that cause us to be susceptible to certain things. Uh, so cognitive biases would be the way that we're set up to, to our, our brain might actually perceive things inaccurately. And I think the mother of all biases, uh, I'm just quoting like Saddam Hussein, the mother of all biases is a confirmation bias. And that is, is that people seem to then uh, to be predisposed to remember the things or attend to the things that actually support their pre-existing beliefs. And then the flip side of that, of course, is to, dis, uh, to, to be disinterested in things that could conceivably disconfirm their beliefs. Uh, so you remember the hits and you forget the misses. Uh, so uh, many things are so vaguely, uh, uh, vaguely stated in forms of pseudoscience that you could look into it and then pick out things, oh, that applies to me. So a horoscope would be an obvious example where you would say, oh, this and this and this applies to me. The things in the horoscope that don't apply to you, you just simply disattend to uh, and that you don't uh, factor that into it. And that's a general problem with, with human intuition is that our, our, our intuition is often incorrect, but we just don't remember the times that it is. Uh, and so what this relies on is often people then reflect backwards or post hoc onto their uh, onto their predictions and say, oh yeah, the horoscope it called it right down the line. It said that I would meet somebody you know new today or whatever, and that they forget the times that they uh, the horoscope was incorrect. But if you can do it as a Monday morning quarterback or after the fact, it seems like it the, the pseudoscience seems like it fits. 
Um, this is related to something called the Barnum effect, named after P.T. Barnum, who famously said that a, a sucker is born every minute. But Barnum uh, realized that often if you state things in a very vague sense, like horoscopes, or, or often his sideshows would, would do things like fortune-telling, uh, that everybody looks into it and sees, oh, that fits me perfectly. So people are, are sort of set up to, re, to remember the things that, that, that apply to themselves, but they don't have, uh, apply a rigorous test. So the, this sorts of, these sorts of biases, they, they basically prejudice uh, us because what we do is that we have um, then a, we're too credulous with things that we want to believe in, but we're not credulous, uh, we're, we're not skeptical enough of the things that don't fit. And so uh, motivated skepticism is basically when people are motivated to discredit the theories that they, disagree, that they disagree with. So I've had people in class before that have been ardent creationists, and if I say, well, here's evolution and here's how it works, it's it's you know substantiated by mounds of scientific information. They'll say, well, what about carbon dating? Uh, how do you know that that's valid? They'll put out some specific thing and then say, if there's any sliver of doubt, therefore I can disbelieve the whole thing. I just had somebody the other day that said carbon dating, maybe it, it's a reliable clock now, but how do we know that things have radioactively decayed uh, at the same rate in the past? And so I was like, well, you know, if, if carbon dating is wrong, then a lot of things are, are incorrect. We have a lot more to worry about than just evolution. Uh, another related thing is is the base rate neglect. So this is a, a nerdy-sounding term, but basically it means that people don't have a sense of how often things really occur in a statistical sense. So if you, the pictures I put up there, let me just ask people here, what are which of these things are most likely to happen to you? Are you most likely to get killed or buy the farm in a, a plane crash, a auto accident, a school shooting, a lightning strike? What do people think? A car accident is by far the most likely thing to happen to you, but people don't have you know fears of driving on the highway. Uh, that there was even some estimates that after the 9/11 uh, hijackings that people you know turned in their airplane tickets. No, thank you. I'm not going to fly. It's too dangerous. And that the amount of deaths on the highway from all the travel after 9/11 were far more than what could have been killed by you know by any type of. Uh, airplane accident. <laughs> Similarly, with with a lightning strike, I was I was going to put also a thing of shark attack up there too. But after, some of you might remember a few years ago there was a big scare about oh the sharks attack, have attacked somebody off of Florida. There was like you know uh, some injuries with that. You're far more likely to get killed by lightning strikes and just dumb old things like that than than shark attack, drowning in your bathtub than shark attacks. But because it's such a dramatic event, people have a very skewed idea about how representative things really happen, and that's the availability heuristic. If things are media-saturated, if they talk about them on the news, uh, that, that they come to mind more often. And so we, ha- we don't really have a good uh, um, uh, indication about how sometimes how often things happen. And so we think incorrectly, oh, this, this thing could happen to me. So uh, often these dramatic or highly publicized cases skew our assessment of how often things happen. Uh, same with school shootings. So after the, the Columbine, th- I think Michael Moore's movie about bullying for Columbine was pretty good at illustrating this and that everyone's scared of, you know, uh, of the school shooters, but there's uh, cases of like, you know, environmental toxins and asthma attacks cause a lot more deaths than school shootings. Uh, strengthening the environmental standards would be a lot more uh, helpful than than uh, um, than some other measures. Uh, so some of you b- might be familiar with the whole scare about well, are vaccinations for the flu safe? Or Jenny McCarthy's crusade against vaccinating uh, vaccinating for um, childhood diseases. Well, uh, part of the the problem with those things are people don't have an, a good idea as to how often.
often people are harmed uh, that by vaccinations. There's a very low rate of reactions to that, but there's a very probable reaction that if you don't vaccinate your kid, that the kid will actually get contagious diseases. In, in fact, um, that's increasing as the amount of people say, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid. That's, uh, that's unsafe. That's increasing the, the rate of spread of things that we actually have a good hold on, like measles and rubella and such. And so these things are, uh, skew our views often of how often things occur. So um, this becomes uh, an affective emotional thing. Oh, that's the cartoon there. I'll credit Christine with that one. There. Um, the, uh, often uh, these emotional factors become more relevant than, than, uh, than the factors that are, are rational. And that is that uh, uh, the emotional appeal of many pseudoscience practitioners. So things like, uh, take like a creationist. Creationists would often say as an argument, well, if evolution is true, then there's no morality and, uh, and then people will just act like animals. Now, even if that were true, which it's not, that's not an argument against whether something occurs or not. Uh, or if, if something has negative consequences, that doesn't mean that the thing is actually incorrect. So often creationists argue against Darwinism and Darwin and Hitler were drinking buddies or whatever. I don't think they were, but the, uh, that sort of thing uh, becomes a, a red herring against the actual argument. Uh, here's a quote by Tom DeLay, former Speaker Tom DeLay from the Congress. After Columbine, he said, guns have little or nothing to do with juvenile violence. The causes of youth violence are working parents who put their kids into daycare, the teaching of evolution in schools, and working mothers who take birth control pills. As if that's an argument against evolution. Obviously, those things aren't true. But even if those bad things about evolution were true, that doesn't mean that it wouldn't happen. So many times people are scared by emotional appeals that, that override all rationality there. Um, another appeal that I think is central to all these things, if you look at the various types of pseudoscience, is that they have the seeming appearance of authority and that, uh, uh, that they often try to drum up consensus. So authority often appeals to, the appeals to authority often include, uh, often include things like, well, uh, experts say, or the majority of people say, uh, in a religious sense, people appeal to scripture. All those things are authorities that aren't valid arbiters of what is actually true or not. Um, I think one of my favorite ones, I was reading a biography of Einstein not long ago, and when Einstein's relativity theories were uh, starting to uh, become well-known in the scientific community, uh, Hitler and his Nazi agents publicized a book, anti-Semitic book, saying that we have 100 scientists here who disagree with Albert Einstein. And Einstein's reaction when he was told that was this, um, 100 scientists, if I were wrong, one would be enough. Uh, his attitude here was that things are decided by the weight of evidence. They're not decided by how many people say something, even if these people have uh, fancy-sounding degrees and things. And I think that people often uh, misunderstand when they hear, like, you know, my, uh, that sometimes pediatricians or doctors say this or that. Uh, if they don't have a full understanding of the actual evidence, they're thrown off by those appeals to authority. Another problem is, is that people often make a false compromise where they hear, well, I've heard X, and I've heard at the opposite end Z, so I guess that means the truth must lie in the middle, and it's Y. Uh, but that's equivalent to saying that, you know, somebody says 2 and 2 is 5, and somebody says 2 and 2 is 4, so it must be 4.5, or something like that. Uh, Bush made this uh, mistake when he was asked about the teaching of intelligent design and he uh, said this. Um, this is the, th the theory that things have been designed too perfectly for to have been evolved. He says, uh, when he was asked whether this should be taught in schools, he said, well, I think both 
Both sides ought to be properly taught. Both sides ought to be properly taught so people can understand what the debate is about. Part of education is to expose people to different schools of thought. That's very seductive because it appeals to our democratic sense of well, uh, things every side should be heard equally. But of course, that's a fallacy in science. Science is not a democracy, Uh, and that if there isn't any, the weight of evidence says that there's no evidence for intelligent design. That doesn't mean that just because a lot of people want that, it should be taught equally. That's like saying that we should teach, you know, neuropsychology as well as phrenology in in schools and, and measure people's skulls. So uh, truth is established by the quality of evidence. And all the examples that you see about, about pseudoscience, they might have a lot of people uh, on board because of various factors. Chiropractic is, is sort of seductive because a lot of people like that. They don't, they're suspicious of doctors. But that doesn't mean that the, that the weight of evidence is on the side of pseudoscience. One, uh, I'm going to end up here by saying that there's a, one final thing that actually blinds us to our own biases. So this is sort of a, the, a meta-bias. Now, you could call it a, bl- a blind spot for our own bias. And that is often people don't realize when, in fact, they are, they are not seen accurately that they are biased. Uh, so we can teach people about things, and this is the thing that keeps me awake at night. You can educate people about psychology and about biases, but often they don't apply it to themselves. People more readily apply skepticism to others than themselves. And what throws them off is that they tend to rely on their own introspection. I've looked within my... Yes, yes, I know people can be biased, but I've looked within myself, and because I feel a certain way and I think that I'm unbiased, therefore I'm not. As you can see here, what people do when they perceive... The, when they look at themselves is that they weigh their own thoughts uh, more so than their, their actions, whereas with other people, they, they do the opposite. What that means is that we tend to say, like... I hate to use Bush again, but remember when Bush met President Putin from Russia and he said, I looked into his eyes and I judged his soul. You know, many people were like, oh, come on, you know, Bush is like, you can't judge another person by just looking into their eyes. But often when people do that themselves, they say, well, I'm a good judge of character, though. That is, they say, yes, other people shouldn't use introspection, but I can use it because I really, I'm not a biased person. So the thing I'm, I'm going to leave people with is that uh, it's easy to laugh at pseudoscience uh, in, uh, and other people's skepticism, but what we really have to do is be vigilant about using science to uh, evaluate our own cherished beliefs. If there's something that you really care about and you're emotionally invested in, be aware of that. Uh, and science is the only tool, however flawed it might be, to drag us kicking and screaming sometimes to invalidate our own beliefs. Okay, I'll turn it over to Jeremy. You can clap for Luke. He needs all the self-esteem he can get. Maybe I should take this as an opportunity to mock Luke in front of a bunch of people. You want to hear some great Luke jokes? No, I'm just kidding. All right, I like the note he ended on uh, the need for humility, uh, the need to subject our own ideas to scrutiny. So one of the questions then would be, uh, which things do we believe are science that are not, that are not, that are pseudoscience? How can we distinguish between the two? Um, Of course, if we're talking about reptile people, the answer might be obvious, but there are other situations where it is not so obvious. And there are even situations where many things pass the test for what we would usually consider to be science, um, but they themselves, the ideas, are still rather suspect. So, unfortunately, distinguishing science from pseudoscience is itself not an exact science. 
Uh, we can only, I can only point to general principles, um, general characteristics of what good science is like. Um, the difficult task is for us to apply these to our own beliefs and to apply these to issues out there in the real world and, and uh, make a judgment whether or not something is science or pseudoscience. Here are what I consider four characteristics of good science. Number one, testif- uh, testability and might even be better put, falsifiability. Uh, Number two, simplicity. Number three, conservatism. And number four, scope and fruitfulness. And I'm going to talk about all of these four for the next couple of minutes. First of all, testability is obvious. Um, If something is going to be scientific, it needs to pass a test. It needs to be tested. Um, A hypothesis is only scientific if it can be tested and it predicts something other than what it was introduced to explain. Sir Karl Popper in philosophy of science is very famous for his idea of the criteria of falsifiability. Um, This means testing something, but testing it in a certain way. In order for a hypothesis to be scientific, it has to be capable of conflicting with some possible or conceivable observation. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, Testing extrasensory perception. ESP is testable. And in the the 1930s, J.B. Rhine and Carl Zener actually began the first scientific study of ESP phenomena at Duke University. To actually test if their subjects had psychic abilities, they created a special deck of cards uh, known now as as the Zener deck. I'm sure you've seen these symbols before. I was watching Ghostbusters the other night, and they started off with a great little uh, uh, scientific trial. I don't know, a couple of wavy lines, and he keeps on shocking the guy anyways, even though he has ESP. Well, what they did is they flashed these cards uh, to people to see if they could predict uh, what symbol was on on the back face of it. They had a huge sample out of 100,000 people the average of hits was uh, 7.1 hits. That's actually better than chance. Chance is five. Now, what is the purpose of of this test? Well, you can see here, here's a probability curve uh, based on uh, this task. So this would be a bell curve for a test of 25 questions with five possible answers, uh, basically going through a Zener deck. And you can see the peak of the bell curve is on five. That is exactly chance. You can, see, uh, you can see to either side, you could expect some people in, in the room are going to get anywhere from, uh, from three hits to seven hits. Um, that, that sort of thing is going to be expected. But their results, they got an average of seven. That's significant. That would point to perhaps real ESP ability. And that's something we need to remember as skeptics. Sometimes some, some of these very radical claims that may seem wrong might actually turn out to be right. It was looking pretty good for the hypothesis that there might be such a thing as ESP ability. Ah, but the other part of science is you need to be able to repeat your results. And so Ryan's study, uh, after people tried to reproduce it, uh, quickly many things were discovered, many uh, sources of what they call sensory leakage, ways that the people who were taking the test 
may have actually been able to find out what was on the back of those cards. And sometimes it was as simple as the symbol had a visible, uh, was actually visible on the back of the card. If the printer stamped it too hard, there might be a, a, a basic outline. Sometimes the screens between the subject and the cards were too small. People could see through them. Sometimes you could see reflections and glasses or even the eye of the researcher. And sometimes you don't even need that. Sometimes just the inflections in the researcher's voice, their facial expressions. Something as simple as, as a researcher nervously tapping a pencil could all... Uh, tip people off to what those what those symbols might actually be. So when better studies were designed that actually controlled for all these things, uh, the scores dropped down to chance, and we were able to falsify ESP. But it was, in principle, it was testable. It just didn't pass the test. The, uh, the other characteristic of good science is simplicity. Uh, you may have heard this concept before, Occam's razor. It says that the best hypothesis uh, is the simplest and the most complete hypothesis that is compatible with all available observations. Now, that is not a law of logic. It's a general rule of thumb. But the thought behind it is pretty easy to get. Let's go through an example of Occam's razor. Here's a scenario. Um, I'm going to give you the evidence, and I'm going to give you possible hypotheses to account for the evidence. Here's the evidence. Number one, you hear scratching sounds. Scratching sounds late at night, and it sounds like it's within the wall. Number two, you left cheese out last night in your kitchen, but now there's only crumbs. This is our data. Can we form a hypothesis to answer it? Well, hypothesis A, there's a mouse in your house that ate the cheese. That would explain the scratching in the walls and the missing cheese. But there's another hypothesis that could account for this just as well, right? Uh, perhaps a maid ate the cheese. I have to apologize for the sexism of that graphic that I used. And I, and I also want to warn you that if you go onto Google Images and you look up maid with the safe search off, you better watch out for the results. But uh, this was the best I could do on the fly. Um, hypothesis B would be that your maid ate the cheese... Why? I don't know. Maybe she's angry at you. Maybe you're not paying her enough. Um, then she lied about it. That would explain why she didn't confess to eating it. Um, and then she left crumbs out. Either she was just careless, didn't cover her tracks, or perhaps maybe she intended to deceive you. Maybe she wanted you to think it was a mouse. Uh, and that would all explain the missing cheese. What about the uh, scratching in the walls? Well, the boiler in your house is broke. Uh, it's an old house, and it's making noises. Now, all of that could account for those observations. But notice hypothesis B, notice, uh, well, notice how much simpler hypothesis A is. It accounts for everything. It's entirely plausible. As we start multiplying uh, in, in our hypothesis, as we start adding entities, as Occam would have said, um, it, it becomes less plausible. It's, uh, it's much easier to take the simpler explanation that still accounts for all of the data. So let's try this out. These are pictures from a website uh, that was talking about the top 10 photographic, uh, the best photographic evidence for the existence of ghosts. The one on the far left is, I think, virtually impossible to see in this setting, uh, but there is what appears to be the outline of a man in the chairs in the, in the, back, of, in the back of this church. 
the middle you can see kind of the specter there hugging somebody uh, out in the snow. And then uh, the last one, I believe this was taken from a ship uh, where two, two people had uh, drowned. And, uh, and this photograph was taken, and after developed, uh, you can see what clearly looks like two human faces here. All right. So they took this as evidence of ghosts, proof that ghosts exist. Well, have we tried any simpler explanations? Like, for example, maybe people are just seeing patterns where there, are, where there really isn't anything. Uh, maybe, maybe just by accident, uh, these photographs record images that roughly look like something we're already familiar with, and we identify that. Well, this is a well-known phenomenon. This happens all the time. Uh, pareidolia is the name of it. So, Satan, uh, Satan in the smoke of the Twin Towers, and that's not photoshopped. Uh, there's even pictures of this from different angles at the same at the same time. Uh, same time stamp on the film. They, they showed different a- angles, and, and you could still see this kind of image. Well, maybe Satan is in, in the smoke. Well, no, maybe we're just seeing a face where there really isn't one. Or maybe there's an obscene gesture in the Eagle Nebula. Right now, out there in the cosmos, hydrogen is flicking you off. Or, of course, Mother Teresa in a cinnamon bun. Pareidolia is very common. Uh, people will perceive faces figures, or even speaking uh, in, in random objects or sounds. Incidentally, oftentimes the, the subject matter of, of pareidolia will be religious, and not surprisingly, it, will, uh, it always happens. Hindus don't have Christian uh, visions and, and, uh, and vice versa. So to anybody who's not convinced that this is just a simple case of finding order in the chaos... Uh, I, I submit to you this. That is Jesus in a dog's ass. <laughs> it's strange that there aren't pilgrims flocking to the house, uh, but maybe, maybe uh, they suspect it's, it's not real after all. All right, conserve, uh, conservatism. All things being equal, the best hypothesis is usually the one that is the most conservative in the sense that it fits with other established knowledge. Um, it, isn't, it isn't shaking things up too much. It's not proposing anything very radical that would cause us to have to revise all of our current beliefs. Um, now, again, this is a rule of thumb. This doesn't. This, this is not a law of logic. It does not have to be this way. Some. It is entirely conceivable that you could discover something that is earth-shattering uh, and and changes the scientific outlook forever. But generally, those types of paradigm shifts don't happen too often in science. Um, two statements that go along very well with this principle: uh, Hume's dictum, "Always reject the greater miracle." And Carl, what is attributed to Carl Sagan, but uh, probably wasn't him originally, uh, but I think he deserves it. Uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, homeopathy. There was an exhibit on homeopathy over here. The idea, of course, is that um, well, homeopathic remedies are diluted uh, in, in water, and the, the more they are diluted in water, uh, supposedly, the more potent these remedies become, uh, the, they call this the law of infinitesimals. 
Uh, this is how their dilution process takes place. Uh, you, you take one part in medicine to 10 parts of water. Then you shake it to distribute the medicine throughout the solution. Uh, and you diluted another factor of 10. So this would be one part of 100. Um, you continue this process. Each time you do that, you add another zero. Now, just, just in, in the nature of reality, eventually you're going to reach a limit. You're going to reach a point where uh, in your solution there's only one molecule that's left. And once you go past that, you've, you've reached the dilution limit. If, if you do this again, it's going to be just water in that solution. Now, this is uh, 30x is a standard homeopath, homeopathic dilution rate. So this would be uh, diluted one part in 10, and then you repeat this 30 times. This is enough to put you far beyond the dilution limit. You would, for example, if, if this is what you're doing here, 30x, you would need to drink 7,874 gallons of water to get just one single molecule of the medicine. That's how far uh, they've, they've diluted this. So by the time you get to 30x, there's no substance left in it. Uh, this is actually one of the um, lower dilution rates. They can go quite higher, such as 200c. This is diluted to one part in 100 and then repeated 200 times. So a dilution of one molecule um, of the extract to every 10 to the 400th power molecules of water. Okay, you catch that 10 to the 400th power? This is how many atoms there are in the universe. There's only 10 to the 80th power. You would need to drink uh, water in a volume larger than that of the known universe before you're going to get one molecule. It's safe to say there's nothing in there. Well, what is the, uh, the homeopathic practitioners? What's their response to this? They must know about this, right? It's nothing new. Their idea is, uh, well, we don't actually need any of the active ingredient. Um, water, water has memory. Many homeopathic believers claim that their treatments are effective because water will retain a memory of the ingredient that somehow changes the structure of the water. Now, this violates known laws of physics. The, the point of conservatism is, okay, to them it may make sense, right? Because, well, I seem to be getting better from this homeopathic remedy, and, well, if there's no ingredient, I guess it must be some sort of memory in the water, right? That's the only thing that could explain it. Well, maybe placebo effect could explain it. Uh, but the point is, we're not going to readily adopt some hypothesis that would have us question everything we know about, about water, about physics, about how molecules work. Um, they're actually asking us to put aside most of what we know about physical science to accept their hypothesis that water can somehow uh, retain a memory. Uh, this is also an example of a fallacy, uh, an ad hoc hypothesis. This is where you create a new hypothesis just to save your theory from refutation. Now, uh, scientists will use auxiliary hypotheses all the time when a, a, a small uh, flaw in their theory uh, is, is exposed. Um, but the idea is that if you are going to use an auxiliary auxiliary hypothesis to shore up your theory, uh, it should be justified. It should be justified by independent evidence. If you are using that for no other reason but to bail your theory out, to save it from refutation, it's an ad hoc hypothesis. It's a fallacy.
Last one, scope and fruitfulness. Um, let me use an, uh, an example of, let's see, my slide for scope is gone. Um, scope would be that it, a, a hypothesis that can explain, explain many diverse phenomena. Um, one great uh, example of this is, is global warming and independent corroboration for it. Uh, without getting into all, any of the politics as, as to whether or not it's man-made, uh, global warming itself, the trend of warming, is a fact. Um, and where do they piece this together? Well, from average global temperature, from uh, studying tree rings, from studying ice cores, watching the migration dates of birds, um, watching mosquitoes and their, their movements further north as things get more warm, watching the permafrost and the glaciers melt and snows on mountains. Now, these are all very different things to study, but if they're all uh, pointing to one conclusion, then you have independent corroboration from many different sources. It strengthens your hypothesis. A hypothesis that has that kind of explanatory scope is much stronger than one without it. And fruitfulness is when a hypothesis opens up new possibilities for research uh, by predicting previously unknown phenomena. A great example of this, uh, one that uh, Karl Popper used in his essay uh, about the criteria of falsifiability, uh, was, was Albert Einstein and his theory of relativity. Albert Einstein's theory predicted many things, uh, very counterintuitive and bizarre things, that nevertheless some of them could be tested. And when they were tested, it, it found out a lot of them were true. So, again, four characteristics of good science. It should be testable, and it should be potentially falsifiable. The best hypothesis explains the most amount of data with the fewest assumptions. Usually it's best if it fits with already accepted knowledge, and if it, if it has the potential for new research to come from, this, from these discoveries. These, this is all signs of, of your idea being science and not just pseudoscience. And that's it. Awesome. Okay, thank you for that. We're going to field some questions. If anybody has anything in mind you'd like to ask to any of the guys here, um, I'm going to welcome up Dr. Paul. We just met him tonight. We had um, some professors drop out, but we're really honored to have him here. And... Um, but I wanted to ask to start off, um, for the idea behind this science fair, it kind of came up to us as we were talking about how much we love science experiments, and the idea evolved into what kinds of pseudoscience we hate and things that just drive us crazy that people believe them. And I'd like to ask you guys if you have anything in particular <laughs> Um, any stories about something you've run into or anything that you just generally about pseudoscience just can't stand or can't believe that people believe it? I'll, I'll take that one first. Um, yeah, well, it was like I alluded to in my talk. I think the thing that irritates me is when, is when people refuse to, uh, to bend to the weight of evidence. I think that, that, that uh, especially when there's some sort of harmfulness 
many people look at things like horoscopes and say, oh, that's cute, even if they don't believe it's true or not. But like I mentioned about the thing about the vaccine has been sticking up my mind lately. That thing really uh, irritates me because children are going to start dying because people aren't vaccinating their kids. And when you point out things like, well, look, you know, here's what's happening uh, and you're well-meaning, but you're incorrect. You're trying to save your kid, but that's, that's nice. But uh, these things have actual effects on kids dying of diseases. And when people still remain uh, sort of obtuse and sticking with the evidence, I think that's one thing in general with a lot of the pseudoscience that bothers me is, is when people refuse to, refuse to uh, accept evidence. Yeah, I, I would say the same thing. It's, it's, it's mostly alternative medicine usually is, is what bothers me. And that stuff really does affect people. You know, uh, at, at one point, uh, it could be, okay, you're taking herbal supplements or something uh, to help you out. But, uh, but if you get into that subculture uh, of alternative medicine, a lot of times they will turn you against doctors. Uh, they will have all sorts of conspiracy theories about, about how uh, mainstream medicine is trying to kill people. It's a sickness industry and all that. And that really negatively affects people. That has a serious impact. Um, hi, uh, my name is Lucas. Um, sometimes I talk to uh, extremely religious people, and um, and I really sometimes they ask me questions, and uh, that's the main question that actually I'm gonna ask you, because uh, it ended up bothering me because it doesn't make sense in my mind at all, so I cannot answer the question when they actually tell me like, well, you're calling me a fundamentalist because um, I a Christian fundamentalist or a Muslim fundamentalist, but. Uh, you are a fundamentalist for like reason and for evidence, so you have a faith in evidence. I was like, I don't know, because it doesn't make sense to me. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, I was just talking about that tonight with somebody that... Um that fundamentalism, the assumption there is that if you strongly believe in something or even feel emotionally like that you believe in something, that therefore that's equivalent across all types of belief. But the fallacy there is that, of course, there's more reason to believe in some things than others. And I think like when people ask Richard Dawkins this about evolution, he's like, if you mean, I'm not going to even try to do the accent, but (laughs) if you mean that I believe strongly in evolution and feel, you know, and feel ardently about it, that's true. In that sense, I'm fundamentalist. But in any other sense, there's a reason to believe in some things more than others. Now, if some people say, well, I'm a fundamentalist Christian, when you sometimes get them against the wall, they'll say, hey, it's a faith matter. I just believe strongly in something because of my inner conviction. That's not the same as believing in something because there's a lot of evidence for it. So if people mean by that you're a fundamentalist because uh, you believe in science, there are external checks on you, like we've been talking about. Uh, you, know, things, you can be checked on that if your beliefs are wrong and they're not supported you know, you, that's gonna, the rug is going to be torn out from under you. So there's a difference in believing in something strongly because it's been demonstrated to have uh, support for it versus believing in something strongly uh, in, a, in a faith, emotional sort of way. That's yeah. what I would say. It, um, I'm sorry, your first name was? Lu, Lu, Lucas. I, I would try to take out the word belief altogether, and I would say, look, if you had um, some proof that there was and here put in anything, invisibility or Nazarene or a miracle, it wouldn't be a question of believing it. I would accept it. But they don't have that. Ex- I mean, they accept it, but it's based on belief. My life is not based on any kind of belief. It's based on the acceptance of reality. It is what it is. And so I really try and, and, and change that because I think they're looking at it as, uh, I'm sorry, your first name again is Luke. Luke, too. Okay, two Luke. Uh, you know, looking at it in terms of, all. you know, we can't criticize, you know, it's just what I believe in is somehow that sacrosanct. That's bull. 
It's not sacrosanct, just can you believe it? I mean, a lot of people believe a lot of stupid things, okay? It's important to be able to say, you know, if you just believe it, fine, but if you're saying there's a science behind it or there's proof behind it, come to my table. And that's where you need to be not afraid to rip people apart because their beliefs need to be ripped apart. Boy, there's a quiet in this room. Did everyone pass out the Thorazine on that or what? I was here, when was it, last year there was a debate between creationists and evolutionists. You remember that? Man, were you people gentle on those people. You're too gentle. You need to be able to say, I mean, because science needs to roll up, and it sometimes does, roll up its sleeves and get down to it. You know, I will, quote, believe anything if you've got the proof for it. You don't have the proof for it, forget it. I'm from New York. <laughs> I'm hoping I'm not going outside your guys' uh, expertise in this, but something popped in my head when reading the Bush quote that Luke brought up, that rings of the Fox News idea that is actually spreading throughout journalism, and maybe not just spreading, but it's actually accented as of late, the idea of fair and balanced. And what... I guess the question I have on that is, how is that actually affecting possibly the pseudoscientific ideas that people are getting, and maybe their ability to decipher between evidence of both sides, and possibly, actually, that would be it. Yeah, so um, this is often brought up in journalism. I know this because my, my brother has a degree in journalism, and so it's, it's often drummed into their head that not a to appear unbiased at all costs. And so when you're covering a story, often there's a tendency to bifurcate that into two equal sides and you treat one equally and then you go in and interview somebody else from that, which works well in many issues of like opinion or things like that. But when you get to a science issue, like this is especially true of coverage of creationism or like we've been talking like vaccine things, that they'll, they'll come up with somebody and they'll interview a scientist and often it's a, a cranky scientist with not a lot of social skills and sort of an Asperger thing and they'll say, well, there's no evidence of that. And then they'll say, and for an alternative view, here's, you know, and then they'll have some, you know, here's Jenny McCarthy and she's an actress. And oh, she's attractive and, and articulate. And so it ends up looking like, well, there's two equal sides and you choose which one is best. And so many students often do this too. They'll say, I don't know what to think. I've read this and there's papers on this other side. It, it, it appeals to like what I was talking about in my, in my uh, talking points there about like this democratic sense of we have to be fair. The problem is, again, sometimes there is a, a weight of evidence or even a tremendous weight of evidence for one side. And for, for you to go then and say, well, we have to interview an intelligent designer or a creationist to be balanced, I think is misleading. And often journalists contribute to the sense that, that there are equal sides when they try to cover two different things. What should be the case is that, you know, what should they do? I think that they, should, they could acknowledge that there is another side, but then they should then say that there is, you know, uh, uh, there's not evidence in proportion to two equal halves because it leads to a false equivalence there. Well, there's like an, a, a relativism that's implicit in that. There is a world of facts out there that we could actually go and, dis, you know, and discern for ourselves what best fits the facts and use that to, to make our political beliefs, it's almost as if that notion is alien to other to, to people now. Like there are worldviews now. You know, if you're if you're a Democrat or you're or you're a Republican, uh, you're going to see the world differently, and and that's just kind of accepted as if there are these parallel universes now um, of of different positions. I mean, whatever happened to people actually looking for facts to base 
their political beliefs on. Um, but but yeah, there's just all this relativism in, in the media, this notion like, oh, it's it's just all different perspectives and, and make sure you get everybody in. I think it's actually laziness a lot of times too. I think it's just not actually spending the time to do investigative journalism, rather just reporting on press releases. Hi, guys. Um, first, I want to say something about that last question, which is there's something I was reading about today called the fallacy of the golden mean, which is, is to say, okay, I've got Joe and Larry who've got two different views about this subject. They're in opposition to each other. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. The problem with that is that once I know you're following that fallacy of the golden mean, it behooves me to stake out a position as far out on the edge as I possibly can and thereby shift the center toward what I, wanna, what I want you to believe. And it, it, once you start following that fallacy, you're, you really are going to be led around by the nose. Um, so my question is, uh, how do you actually get people off of this stuff? Because I think it's probably safe to say that the people in this room are the choir to whom you've been preaching. I know I am. And my sad experience is there isn't any amount of reason that is going to have any effect on most people. So what will? We've got 100 years left. Live it well. I, I really, I mean, I, I agree with that I, in the sense of, and you say, Paul, you're a pessimist. If our species <coughs> lasts another hundred years, eh, we, we're lucky. I mean, I think we are led around by so many morons. It is amazing to me that we are existing this far. I mean, you, you have this golden mean thing, you know, the Fox News and all this stuff, you know, the Caribou Barbie from Alaska. You've know, got all this stuff, and you fortunately say only 20, 25 million people. But these people sometimes vote, and who knows what's going to happen. I think we are, as a species, doomed unless we can do something radical. How radical? I don't know. I mean, who's here? The choir. How, te- do, how do we get young people to, to, to come alive? I teach at an art college, so think of all your stereotypes of artists for the moment. I teach a critical thinking class, and uh, the first year I taught it, I taught it as an informal logic course, and you can guess how excited the students in the class got about that subject matter, especially during a summer class. The second year I taught it, I taught it as the art of deception, and I told them, you would come into this class and you would learn how to win any argument, even if you were wrong. Uh, You would learn how to uh, lie, cheat, and steal and con people out of their money. Uh, (laughs) You would learn how to create, uh, you know, religious uh, and paranormal hoaxes. You'd learn how to bend spoons, read minds, everything else. And uh, guess what? I filled the class. They loved it. People talk about it. Each, each summer, more people sign up for it, and, and it's always a full class. Um, you got to sex it up a bit, but people really do crave, I think, good critical thinking skills precisely because of this Internet and other things um, that uh, would, would lead some to believe we're doomed. Um, people have a way of, of um, stepping up to the plate when there's a need, and right now, we are becoming, uh, you know, an information economy, some are saying. Um, we are becoming a world that is, is increasingly more focused on data and information. And the need now is for critical thinking skills. 
Um, if we just get that message out there and we put it in an appealing package, uh, I'm I'm not as I, I'm I'm a little more hopeful that uh, that a good change can be made. And part of that, part of my evidence for that is just to look at look at the amazing meeting, look at TAM, look at some of these conferences that are built around skepticism. The attendance is going through the roof. This movement is is growing. Uh, people people want to know this stuff. They want to know how to think better and think for themselves. Yeah, I wouldn't. That, that's all basically what I think too. Well, not both because they. But <laughs> You're uh, in yeah, the middle. what they said. No, but uh, the thing I would add to that is I think that everybody uh, should be a little bit more uh, evangelical about about in their everyday lives about talking to people, not in an abrasive way, of course, but like to like Jeremy said to to sex it up a bit, but to make it seem as if it's not just being debunking and that we're not just dire people that actually like Carl Sagan did. I think he's what what's why he's so revered is that he was somebody who who combined very scientific types of skepticism but brought it to the public in a way that, that so this is not just taking away from the magic of your life but it's adding to it science i think he said you know is our only candle in the dark and that if you and that we can learn so much more about about the universe it's so much more special when we use scientific and critical thinking about things so rather than just tearing down a belief and saying you're full of crap and you know you're just deluded people to then say look at how much we've learned through science the tools of science all these things that that have added to our lives so i think we can make it a positive skepticism rather than a negative skepticism let me let me butt in here i i don't generally go up to everybody and say they're full of crap okay i mean it really no but but i i agree with luke i i think that it, it's funny because i've I've really mellowed as I've gotten older, and it made it hard to believe. That's why I like come to these, you know, things at colleges. But I've mellowed a lot. And for example, when I meet somebody who is fundamentalist, Christian, or any religion, you know, I'll say, "Geez, you know, I, I'm wondering how this happens." And I'll sort of ask a almost a, a Socratic type of open-ended question, and they'll start talking. And it's not where I want them to feel like that they're stupid or anything. I'll say, "Gee, that just I don't get it. it just doesn't seem to make sense." And then usually they'll say, uh, I don't know, it's just something I believe in. And go, oh, I guess that's it. So now my hope, maybe I believe in hope, who knows, is that there's a little tiny seed there, a little tiny seed. And maybe down the road they'll meet, you know, two nice people like uh, uh, to my right over here. And, that, you know, can sex – no, and I, I'm not, I think it's right. I think Jeremy's absolutely right. You do have to sex up, and maybe it'll take root. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll give you 125 years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll get implants that will cause the problem or, or take care of the problem uh, before yeah. before that. It was um, it was brought up this evening the idea of you know it's easy that we all I'm skeptical of this I'm skeptical of that I'm skeptical of the other thing but it was brought up that we have to look inside of ourselves and things that we hold dear and you know why we believe these things and I guess my question is where is the line drawn I mean um, one could say that. For example, the Partridge Family is my favorite band and the, the best group that ever existed. But obviously, there are other groups that have sold more records and could be proven that they are better. Or, you know, I, I love the Detroit Lions. They're the best team. But there are teams that have won more championships and things. And where is the line drawn of when it's okay to um, hold something near to you and not look at it in a necessarily skeptic? I mean, is it ever okay to say, this is the best because I like it? I mean, is there is there a line there? I think uh, matters of taste are a whole different ball game, and uh, 
not to say that there aren't debates you can get about your your own aesthetic values and things like that, but uh, but I, I think um, when we're talking about propositions, when we're talking about truth claims, that's where it's important to be to be the skeptic. Um, uh, but there's a whole lot of life that's outside of that realm, and uh, and if one were to uh, you know engage in some sort of hyperbolic doubt like Descartes, their entire life they would be missing out on a lot of of what life is truly about. So there are some areas that intersect with these questions, and luck- lucky for us, there are many that don't. Yeah, I mean, like Jeremy said, there's, there's, there's matters of taste, and there's nothing wrong with having preferences. You know, you look kind of sadly at people that say, you know, the Cubs, number one. You know, they're, they're, not, number, they're not number one because they're the best. They're, 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 they think they're number one because it's their team, and that's fine. You know, and even sometimes with people with religion, they seem to have that realization somewhere in the back of their mind that the only reason I think that Lutherans are the best is because I was raised Lutheran. And so there's like, okay, you, you get it. But for people who take it seriously as if those preferences exist in reality, yeah, that is a problem. I would say that like, you know, Jeremy teaches a class on uh, aesthetics. You'd think that aesthetics would be, you know, like if you just like a painting, you like the painting. Don't criticize it. Shut up. But I think what's fascinating even about that is to, to have conversations about why you like something. If you like, you know, this band versus that band. Like I heard a study the other day about certain personality types of people liking certain music. Those people that were more sort of emotionally complex, they like jazz. Those people who were maybe not so much deep thinkers, they like, you know, I'm not going to say it, but, well, pop, because you might be a favorite, but like pop, you know, certain types of pop music. And I, th- I like to have that discussion. That's grist for the mill. I'm not going to kill anybody over that because it doesn't make any external reference to reality. It doesn't hurt me or, you know, like Jefferson said, it doesn't pick my pocket or break my leg if you want to think that so-and-so is the best band in the universe. But when you start saying that, that uh, this is the best band in the universe and you should go to their concert and I'm going to, you know, beat you up if you don't, then that starts to be moved from just a, a preference to a truth claim that should be applicable to everybody. There's, there's a difference between those two domains of knowledge. Although that the Beatles are better than the monkeys is objective aesthetic fact. I'll just leave you with that. Yeah, I've seen personality questionnaires that try to develop who, what you're like as a person by which beetle you like or whatever. So there's, you know, there's a small contingent of Ringos out there that, yeah. Well, you guys brought up um, aesthetics, and this might be a question more for Jeremy, but um, I'm taking an aesthetics class now here at Grand Valley, and we've talked about how um, certain types of critics are, are, can be tested, like a, a vodka critic. You know, you can give him a blind taste <laughs> test, and he can rank in, you know, top shelf to low shelf. And so I guess is... Is there anything falsifiable or testable in art criticism, oh or my God. is that a pseudo science? Uh, okay, I'm. I'm. First of all, I'm not very qualified <laughs> to answer this. I, I do teach aesthetics, but uh, regardless, um, I didn't really want to bring this up. But but yes, there are some interesting ideas about how one might actually be able to justify their aesthetic preferences. So let me let me give you like just a real simple scenario, David Hume. David Hume brings up this idea, okay, it's all matters of taste, right? It's all subjective. It's all in your mind. How could you get an argument about matters of taste? Well, think of it this way. Who's going to be the better judge of a good gourmet dish? Uh, Somebody who has a very rich, sophisticated palate, who's given a lot of training and is very sensitive to the ingredients, uh, or somebody who has a cold, like I do right now, and wouldn't be able to taste much of anything. Um, Yes, there is a subjective component to our aesthetic values. Um, However, 
we are objective creatures. We have uh, some people have better sensitivity with their eyesight, uh, with with their taste buds, um, and some people have better sensitivity. Hume argued in their imaginations, better training, more sophistication. So actually, I do think it's legitimate to argue about uh, about values, to argue about tastes to some degree. Uh, it's just not as the consequences involved are, are uh, for what decision where you come down on the monkeys beetles debate uh, is just really not that serious, and it's not worth uh, getting into uh, knockdown drag out arguments about them unless you have fun doing it. Or if you're in England at a soccer pitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say that that's not a, like saying that this art is better than that art is not an empirical question. But again, in my field, what I think is an interesting empirical question is. There are, they do correlate with real-world things. That is an empirical question. Certain people that like these things can be compared with different groups that like these things, and I think those are the interesting questions. Why is it that, for example, you know, um, you know, certain personality types might value this type of music or this type of art? You know, that's you know, items on a questionnaire. Some certain people prefer abstract art and to other people that like those Kincaid paintings with a little cab in the smoke. That, that, that correlates with, real, with a real-world thing. So I guess my, my only caveat is, sure, preferences are, are in some way arbitrary, but you could develop something where you correlate somebody's preference with what they're like. That's an empirically validatable question. Well, new data is coming out all the time about evolutionary origins and cross-cultural um, uh, aesthetics. So, so yeah, uh, the, there actually might be real facts to talk about soon, uh, if, if enough research. Well, I was just reading an article the other day on neuro, neuro-aesthetics. Um, um, there are certain things that are deterministic in the brain about... Uh, about how we perceive uh, images and, and the sensations they arouse. So who knows? Maybe someday, maybe someday we will get into factual debates about taste. All three of you guys are uh, pretty active in educating people in skepticism. Luke and Jeremy, you guys uh, do your podcast. And you do, uh, Paul, you do a do like parties and other things like magic shows. I make money by scamming people. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, outside of my private practice, I mean. I know, I know, I know. I was like, Can the three of you guys yeah. sort of talk about that and what kind of responses you have had from people, even if it's with the scamming? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say it first. I'm a psychic entertainer. I'm a magician. Um, I know Randy. I know Jamie and Swiss. I know these guys um, helped investigate some, some things a number of years ago. But I also do private parties, and I usually do a, an hour or so of walk-around close-up magic. A lot of fun. And then I'll, have, I'll do psychic entertainment. I always call it that, psychic entertainment. And when people say, is it really a scam? I say, it's not really a scam, but it is kind of fun. Uh, and I, you know, I charge people a certain, you know, for parties and whatever, and I'm very good at it. Uh, one of the best, quite frankly, in, in the area of cold. Well, I am one of the, in the area of cold reading. And... Um, and uh, usually I bring at least four or five people to tears. It's a good day. No, it's a good day. And they love it. They love it. They really. Well, wait a second. Did you ever see a play that brings you to tears? Um, Luke and I are, uh, we do a podcast, Reasonable Doubts. It is about skepticism. Uh, it's skepticism directed mostly towards religion. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm a... Ex, well, I was trained to be a minister. I was going to Bible college, and I deconverted, became an atheist. And, and you know what? You know all this stuff, and you don't have a lot of people to talk to about it. 
Uh, so I, I met uh, Luke at uh, a group uh, at CFI uh, back when it was the Free Thought Association, and he was about the only person I, I knew that I could have uh, very detailed and interesting conversations about the Bible. Uh, basically what Reasonable Doubts is is it just came out of conversations between, uh, between people, skeptical conversations about information. There's all this interesting information out there about religion, um, that would make people think twice that a lot of times they don't hear. So that's what we do. We share it. Um, we apply cri- good critical thinking skills to a lot of, a lot of these debates between uh, Christian apologists and skeptics. And uh, he, he handles the psych end uh, very well. And, uh, and I talk about Christian apologists and why they're wrong. And, uh, it's done very well. Uh, there seems to be a market for that out there. Uh, pe- people want to hear these discussions. They they want to uh, they want to know what reasons there might be for doubt, and we supply that. Do you have anything to add, Luke? No. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to know, Paul. Can you read my mind? <laughs> I, I can, but quite frankly, I think it would be very disappointing to the young man. That's all I'm going to say. At this Wrong. Point. The answer is potato. <laughs> Sorry, I'm Irish. Okay. Um, really want to thank everybody for coming. Thank you guys for speaking. Everything has been awesome. Just real quick, we do have sign-up, CFI GVSU. Anybody wants to get a hold of us, um, you can find us on Facebook. And if you have any other questions, just come to me or Kermit. And thanks again for coming. catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>